This is the Education Gadfly Show. Well, some people have a hard time logging into our podcast software. <laughs> oh, shots fired. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Nino Reese. Nino, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Nina, you must be our most frequent guest on this show over the past however many years we've been on. I think we've been on almost 15 years, and I bet you've you've probably have hit double digits at this point. I was one of your first guests when you launched the podcast. You were, and Rick Hess said something snarky about you, and you took it so well. That's how things roll. Also joining us, our co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. David, a much nicer guy than Rick Hess ever was. I mean, come on. Rick knows that. We have He's got an attitude. Shorts, though. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, these days, sure. For those of you that somehow don't know, Nina is the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. We worked together way back in the day at the U.S. Department of Education, the early aughts. And it is great to have you with us, Nina. And Nina, usually I have to say we have a pretty friendly conversation, but I hope you're ready. I'm going to push you on something you wrote for Rick Hess at AEI that was a little perplexing to me. So let's do that at Ed Reform Update. All right, Nina. So Rick has this great series that he's running at American Enterprise Institute this summer about what conservatives should be for. I think he's had a couple posted so far. I remember Mike McShane looking at hybrid homeschooling. Who else did we have? Lindsay at the Heritage Foundation. On, uh, I still need to read that one. I don't quite remember it, but uh, really Nina, get your homework there, Patrilli. It's on my reading list somewhere. I just forget. It was interesting because it was a form of accountability, even though they've been skeptical on accountability. But I digress. Nina wrote an article titled "A Constitutional Right to a High Quality Public Education," and it's interesting. I bet it got the heads turning at AEI because creating new constitutional rights is not something that conservatives are usually super excited about. You go on to write about how this is something that should be done at the state level, not the federal level. And you try to make the case that it is, in fact, conservative. So let's hear it, Nina. What is this all about? What does it mean, first of all, to have a constitutional right to a high-quality public education? And why is this a good idea? Well, the reason I wrote this piece is because for most of us who've been involved in the choice movement, one of the things that keeps happening when you're advocating for choice is that oftentimes school districts are still making decisions on a day-to-day basis. And if you recall with No Child Left Behind, school districts had all these things they were supposed to do if the law wasn't serving the needs of students well, but hardly any of them were taking advantage of the opportunities presented to them to give parents public school choice options, access to after-school tutoring, and everything else in between. So this is just an attempt at giving parents another arrow in their quiver to advocate for high-quality public education. And it's also designed, to some extent, to address something Rick asked me to do, which is to come up with some new ideas to address ways to bring the left and the right together around common causes. I am pretty perplexed at the fact that all this power and authority has been shifted back to states and school districts. I don't see a lot of innovation coming out of states and school districts right now. Uh, And I think one way to change the power structure is by empowering parents and giving them some agency to make decisions. 
Okay. All right. So let's unpack this a little bit. So first of all, you know, there already is a right to education in every state constitution, right? There's a responsibility for the state to provide an education that the constitutional clauses vary somewhat. And those have been used over the years for parents and others to file lawsuits, arguing that the states aren't fulfilling their duty, usually because they're not spending enough money. So what would this mean to now maybe up the ante a little bit to say, not only do they have to provide adequate education, let's say they have to provide a high quality education. Why is that important? Well, again, just spending money on this problem hasn't been enough at raising student achievement. So this is another way at addressing really the outcomes that we want from our schools and empowering parents to go and ask for certain things that for whatever reason, the district is not offering them. So it's not just about raising for pupil allocations and funding, but it, it is about outcomes. So for instance, if you are on the waiting list uh, of a high quality charter school and the district is not allowing for that charter school to access a facility to expand the size of that charter school, this could be a vehicle that parents could use or collectively the community could use to ex expand access to high quality public schools. But it doesn't have to be limited to charters and choice options. It, it could also be about offering higher quality instruction at a school. The case I'm making is for amending the constitution in those states that are interested in this option in order for parents to have the option. So ultimately, state legislatures need to make this decision or parents and taxpayers have to go to the ballot box to amend their constitution. So I'm not taking this lightly, which is why I offered to make this something that states have to do one by one rather than something that the federal government should take on right now. Sure. Well, I guess I'm still trying to understand, though, what would it actually, because I think in your piece, you say that there would not be a private right of action. Parents would not be able to, say, sue school districts like they can under the federal uh, IDEA law for students with disabilities. Uh, and so then what? Let's say it's a case that parents on a waiting list, they're not happy with what their school district is providing. There's this constitutional clause. So then what? What does it mean? Does, does it have yep. some teeth somehow? Right now, if you look at in Minnesota, Neil Kashkari, who's now on the Federal Reserve Board in Minnesota, Minneapolis, is advocating for uh, such a measure uh, in Minnesota. So that's one way of looking at this. He is a Republican, by the way. He ran for governor of, of California. Uh, so this is not like IDEA, where an individual family and a child can sue the district in order to get access to a private school and have taxpayers pay their bill. This is about a collection of individuals, if you see that there's a consistent lack of quality at a school coming together to demand for high quality options. So there is the potential for a lawsuit to be filed, but it needs to bring the community together and there needs to be collective action around it. And I also think once you pass something like this, conceivably, it is easier for us to make the case for certain things to happen faster. I also think the prospect of filing lawsuits often leads to legislative action because lawsuits tend to attract a lot of attention if, if they have merit, of course. So mm -hmm. I do think there are other ways, but again, it needs to be drafted in a way that doesn't lead to too much litigation. The framework of IDEA is actually something that I was initially thinking about when I was thinking about this piece, but I also know that that is one of the key reasons why a lot of individuals are 
likely not to support this idea because they don't like the litigious nature of that law. Well, David, you tend to come at these issues from the left and folks on the left usually feel more comfortable about using the courts in this way around social policy. Is this uh, something you think is worth trying? That isn't, first of all, that's a really interesting observation in light of the last few years, but I'm going to let it pass. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Suffice it to say, I disagree. I have some concerns about empowering courts instead of empowering parents. I mean, I, or lawmakers, you can debate who is sort of best positioned to affect a necessary change. And the the truth is it it can come from a lot of ways and there's really no guarantee that anyone's going to get it right. I guess my question would be though, how are we defining high quality education and who gets to define it, right? In other words, let's say it goes to court and somebody says, this is not a high quality education. Look at these test scores. And somebody else says, well, there's a link between test scores and later life outcomes is there, but it's debatable and there's limitations to the research and blah, blah, blah. I mean, at a minimum, it seems like you wind up with judges digging really deep into social science research that they're not necessarily that qualified to to wrap their heads around. Even if they were, I'm not sure where the consensus comes from, right? Maybe parents collectively know it when they see it, but, but help me understand that. Again, this is why I wrote the piece, because a lot of the details still need to be drafted. And I wanted conservatives to have a seat at the table around these very discussions. You can draft this in such a way as to mitigate some of the questions you're asking. I do think it's very important now more than ever before for us to have some consensus around what we mean by quality and making sure that we're making that quality education available to all students, especially after everything that's happened with COVID. The divide between the haves and have-nots is more accentuated now than ever before. And the whole accountability movement, which was based on testing and holding schools and teachers accountable, is no longer really in place. I mean, in fact, a lot of universities are no longer even relying on the SAT as a tool to accept students. So we do need to be at the table to decide at the end of the day, what do we collectively think is a high quality education? And if we all agree as to what it looks like, then why would we not make that available as a right to communities so that they can ask for it when they don't see it? Leaving it up to districts with school boards that come and go and superintendents who come and go is too much of a gamble if your ultimate goal is to close the achievement gap and give poor kids in particular a leg up in reaching the American dream. And look, let's be honest, Nina, you would not be unhappy if the outcome of this is for the judge tells the legislature you got to do something and the legislature says, well, These districts, uh, especially these big urban districts, just can't seem to get it together. So we are going to allow for more charter schools in this given community to serve more poor kids as a way to make sure that we are fulfilling our obligation here to provide a high quality education. That could be one outcome that you have here. As just happened in Michigan, there was a case brought against the state, I believe, around access to high quality reading instruction and the legislature allocated funds to make instruction in reading available to these schools. So that is ultimately what I was driving at. There you go. All right. See, see, David, it's all a big right wing conspiracy. Well, you put it right on the label. I mean, you know, (laughs) call me crazy. I just sort of wish that we would start from the premise of what's the right answer and not whether it's conservative or not. That is totally fair. The accountability movement may be dead, but long live the accountability movement. I'm still here. Mike's still here. I don't know. Maybe we're alone. And hey, I think the basic insight is right. We cannot continue to let school districts that are getting terrible results, even if you measure it the right way with growth and all the rest, try to make the case that, well, we're just doing the best we can when they're not. 
And so then what? If you're at an impasse, there's got to be an alternative for parents, but also for policymakers. All right. So Nina, I'm, I'm coming along. I think you, you have moved my opinion to some degree on this question. Mike, I'm going to invite you to our working group now. So hey, look, that's what it's about in a debate. Again, I believe in growth. It doesn't mean I have to change my mind, but you have moved my opinion somewhat. All right. Hey, awesome, Nina. Well, people should check that out. And all the other papers in this series, including the ones that I can't remember right now at the American Enterprise Institute. So thanks, Nina. Again, uh, President and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. I hope you'll come back again sometime soon. Thanks so much, Mike. Bye-bye. Right. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. How's pandemic life treating you these days? Oh man, we're just, you know, day by day, just hanging in there like everybody else and uh, summer's coming. So we're going to make the best of it. You know, our neighborhood pool has opened up for limited engagements. You got to reserve a slot better than nothing. Although man, there's like a mini rebellion going over around over all the rules. I can understand (laughs) why. Oh, and and there's my dog. He's mad about it too. You know, he, he wants in the pool. And they're not letting him. That's basically what the neighbors are saying to each other. Don't right worry now. about the dog. Like, it makes us gritty. You know, it's a gritty podcast. Yeah. You mean like real gritty? Is that it? <laughs> All uh, right, Amber. Why don't you tell us what you got for us this week? You'll mute yourself while I talk for a couple minutes. All right. Uh, we have a new study. An educational researcher examines the impact of telepresence courses on access to advanced courses and other high school courses in a large low-income urban school district. And for once, it's actually named. It's Milwaukee Public Schools. But speaking of names, did they really call it a tele... What was it? A tele... Telepresence. And I got to tell you what it is, right? What is it? The 1970s? I mean, come on, people. Why not online? Hello, that's my first thought. Uh, apparently what makes it a telepresence course is the instructor is in a different location from the classroom of students. Okay. But I think it's the technology. Supposedly this technology, they partnered with Cisco allows for enhanced video and sound compared to typical teleconferencing technology. It is two-way interactive and a lab teacher interacts with some students on site and others remotely using site-to-site specialized cameras and widescreen interactive monitors that facilitate, quote, instructor-student interactions similar to what is possible in a traditional high school classroom. So that's the claim, okay, that it's got Hmm. some whizzy technology that makes it where it's, you know, widescreen TV, you got a camera on both ends, some degree of technology that supposedly makes interactivity even better. MPS says they began the program because of financial constraints. Administrators kept reporting before the program that fewer than the required number of students that you have to have to offer an AP course were showing an interest. So they thought this district-wide approach would work. So analysts examined separately students enrolled in this telepresence course in the host school, where the students, again, received instruction in the same location as the teacher most days, versus students who participated remotely and received instruction in a different location from the instructor most days. I say most days because a few lessons every semester the instructor would teach from the remote location and not the host school in order to have face-to-face time with the remote kids. Okay, so the study is quasi-experimental, mixed methods, because they administer student survey and instructor survey in addition to using students' fixed effects models. The models are essentially comparing students with themselves in alternative years. So, for instance, they compare student test scores and attendance in the years in which a given student enrolled in one or more of these courses on-site or remotely 
to the same students' test scores and attendance in the years they didn't enroll in these courses. We have data on about 600 students who participated in the courses. About 200 of them were participating remotely. And then they do some descriptive statistics on the, you know, what these kids look like and compared to the general student population, they're less likely to qualify for free or reduced lunch, less likely to receive SPED services or be receiving English language learner services, more likely to be white and female. Okay, they have three years of data starting in 2015-16, 17 different courses were offered in total, not all of which were AP courses. So what's interesting to me about this, before I get into the findings, is that the program focus was really on making sure that the classes got to know one another despite this remote setting for some of the kids. So they had several out-of-school gatherings. They would meet on Saturdays, or the kids from all the schools would come together and work together. So the class sizes, sometimes we think about these you know, online slash telepresence courses as being huge and that being one of the advantages. But in here, class size ranged from about 8 to 30 students still, and which is in line apparently with what the College Board recommends for AP courses. All right, that's a lot of context. So finally, the findings, participation in telepresence courses in a given year translated into enrollment of 1.3 more AP courses. Remote participation was a little higher, translated to 1.5 more AP courses. Participating students did not have significantly different standardized test scores when enrolled in these courses versus when they weren't enrolled, but they also didn't have test scores for big chunks of the sample, so that didn't do too much for me. But however, they did also look at ACT scores, and all students in Wisconsin had to take the ACT under uh, Wisconsin law. So they examined ACT scores of students in the courses compared to the scores of students who never enrolled after controlling for eighth grade student and school covariates, which I think is about the, the best they could do. They found that students enrolled in telepresence courses on-site or remotely scored about two to three points higher than similar students on the ACT. Finally, they looked at attendance and they find that the percentage of days absence from school was lower by about 2% among students who participated remotely in these courses. And finally, they give you a bunch of information on the survey data, uh, which showed that students enjoyed interacting with students from other schools. That was one of the big things that they, you know, really said they liked and appreciated the out-of-school gatherings where they learned together. Teacher surveys said the technology didn't always work, especially at the beginning, but it improved over time. So anyway, the analysts ended up saying, hey, this could be a promising model. So there you have it. What you think? Yeah, well, good. I, I should say, is and, and did Cisco fund this study? Is that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I didn't look at the fine print. Did not look at the fine print. We should find out. I love that the, the technology didn't work at first. I'm sure that had nothing to do with, uh, I'm sure it was the technology and not the teachers still trying to figure That's out how right. to use the That's technology. Right. <laughs> kind of like when some people right. have a hard time uh, logging into our podcast software. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shots fired. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, that hurts. <laughs> oh, look, uh, you know, of course, this is relevant to what's going on right now as we get ready for a lot more online learning in the year to come. It seems to say, you know, it's kind of conventional wisdom, I think, right, is that it uh, works pretty well when you've got motivated students who are the type of students likely to be in AP classes. Um, yeah. certainly helps if there's a way for kids to, to build relationships with the kids in, in the real world. And so mm-hmm. those Saturday opportunities seem pretty cool. You know, that, that's why, as we've been talking about forever, one day a week uh, in school is a whole lot better than zero days a week. Uh, and especially as this, as this new school year begins, you know, and, and you assume that teachers are going to have to have a new group of kids and they haven't had a chance to build relationships, unlike last year where, you know, we were three quarters of the way through the school year uh, and the yeah. teachers already had those relationships. 
I think that's right, Mike. I mean, I, I feel like that's what we, we're learning through this whole experiment during the pandemic is that online just continually has to mean relationship building, um, mm-hmm. which is a lot harder to do. You got to try harder. But yeah, kids just have to feel connected to their teacher and to other kids in the classroom. And so mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, this was obviously before all this happened, but I thought it was interesting that, you know, the program made a point of making sure that they somehow did that. There's a long section of the paper where they make sure the kids know each other's names and they mm-hmm. post things about themselves and you have to like introduce your, your peer. Um, mm-hmm. But again, sometimes that seems a little hokey. Um, but honestly, I think, you know, what the teacher said in the survey data are, are those types of things at the beginning pay dividends in relationship mm-hmm. building and making for a more positive experience, not only some of these, you know, increases we saw in some of these outcomes. I, I'm curious. I have to say, I do not know in, in the big virtual schools, especially the virtual charter schools, the ones run by K-12 or Connections Academy or others, in most of those cases, do kids have classmates? Do they have peers? I really don't know. I mean, I feel like so much of the, the discussion is as if- We should find out. We should find out, right? I mean, I'm curious because, I, you know, you, you think about, uh, we, we say, well, it's all individualized as if, okay, there's the kid interacting with the digital material and with a teacher helping, often with helping many more kids than typical with a parent helping right. as well. Forever, a big part of school has been having classmates. Uh, it turns out, that's pretty important. And I, I'm just curious, there must be virtual schools out there that recreate classes. Yeah. But I, I just mean, don't know. You know, and that's what they do at the, uh, at the university level, right? You still have, mm-hmm. you still have classes. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's my understanding. But again, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> You know, Mike, I'll just say with my very brief experience, we, you know, we used to, we used to have this like Everform course, right? That we ran at Fordham and, and one year we, we were going to stop doing it, right? So we, uh, we just kind of let everybody in and did an online version. Um, and my two big takeaways were one, if, if, you know, to the point that you're making, Mike, right? You absolutely can't have classrooms. They shouldn't be much bigger than a normal classroom, right? In other words, if you have a hundred people in the online classroom, it doesn't feel like a classroom. It just feels like sort of a, a message board, <laughs> right? Like you would find on the Washington Post or something. So I mean, I think there's probably an upper bound, I'm not sure what it is of like 20 or 25 kids. So the classrooms might still have to be small. And then the other thing I took away from it was, I mean, in some ways, it makes streaming easier, right? Because you don't have the sort of physical, I don't know, it's not so obvious that some kids are in the advanced course and other kids aren't, right? Um, You don't have, you know, kids physically walking into, you know, different classrooms, they don't, you know, you can't tell that some kids look different in one classroom versus another classroom. Um, You know, you can do it all kind of discreetly um, and maybe meet people where they are at. Um, Mm -hmm. So there are some advantages. But I mean, Uh, what say about the quality of teacher feedback you're going to get back if you have a hundred people in the class or a mm -hmm. MOOC, you know what I mean? Like, it's right. hard enough to get high quality feedback with 20 kids, much less 100. So I think we also need to think at it from a, from that vantage point of what feedback the kid's going to receive. So. Yeah, but, but Amber, you, you and David, both as high school teachers, I mean, you guys had over 100 kids, right? They were just spread out across, you know, five yep. different classes. Yep. Right. But it's different when you're, you know, you got a planning period, you know, every day and you've got, yeah. again, you've got 20 kids at a time. It's different yeah. at a time yeah. once. All at yeah. once. Yeah, and I, I should I say, also, everything was asynchronous, right? When mm-hmm. we did that, and, and I don't have much experience with a synchronous version where you're actually looking at the teacher. Mm-hmm. I will say one last point is, you know, this technology does sound interesting in that, uh, you know, we're going to be looking at what people are calling a hybrid model a lot, where half the kids are at school in a given day and half the kids are not. With this kind of thing that I guess WebEx or whatever it is, Cisco, um, you know, that you could be teaching 
everybody every day. And it's just a different group that happen to be remote and a different group that happen to be in school, which I don't think is probably what most schools are thinking about right now. Most schools are probably going to be like, okay, the kids at home are just having to do stuff basically on their own independently. Right. Uh, And then the kids at school get a lot of attention while they're at school. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's interesting. But, you know, hey, yeah, it's nice, but I guess, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think 0.1% of classrooms in America like, have that technology. Yeah. I think that's right. But I do think that's worth considering. Like, I mean, you come in as a teacher, right, and for second period, you, you say hello to the quarter of kids who are there, right? You switch mm-hmm. on the, the technology and say hello to the other three quarters, right? Yeah. Uh, look, yeah. In theory, I think that's a good model, depending on how long this lasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have uh, budget information or in the study. I was pretty curious myself. They were provided five sets of this technology. So uh, mm-hmm. anyhow, who knows how costly it is, but yeah. <laughs> Let's scale it. Yeah. All right. Good. Well, uh, speaking of scale, uh, we are out of time. Is that a good segue? What do you guys think about that? That's a terrible no? uh, segue. I don't even get we, it. We have, we have overscaled <laughs> yeah. up uh, this podcast. So yeah. <laughs> until go. next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.